You're listening to Green Mountain Medicine, an original podcast series by ACP Vermont for all things internal medicine. I'm Matt. I'm Dylan. And we're your hosts on tonight's show. This series aims to unpack the complexity of medicine in a nuanced and evidence-based way. And if that sounds like something you would enjoy, then we are happy you could join us. For the next half hour, we invite you to relax, grab some coffee, and engage with us as we deconstruct the topics that impact our field and characterize our practice. Hey everyone, welcome to Green Mountain Medicine episode 10. Uh, We're here today with Dr. Garth Garrison. He's a pulmonologist and associate professor at Larner College of Medicine. He's a pulmonologist at UVM Medical Center, excuse me, and he uh, is our course director for our medicine acting internship, um, which uh, both Matt and I are in our first week and we are loving it. Dr. Garrison uh, attended medical school at the University of Utah and completed his residency and Pulmonary Critical Care Fellowship at University of Michigan. Um, So we asked uh, Dr. Garrison to come uh, talk with us today because there was a recent article uh, in the British Medical Journal Opinion um, by Dr. Julie Silver, a physiatrist at at Harvard Medical School, entitled, Prehabilitation May Influence Surgical Morbidity and Mortality During and After the COVID-19 Pandemic. Dr. Silver made the argument that this ongoing pandemic and associated Government restrictions will likely have a negative impact on patients' health, things like poor diet, less exercise, mental health issues. Um, you know, these are very uh, concerning for patients who um, may be scheduled to undergo elective surgeries because they might present below their pre-pandemic baseline the, um, with some deconditioning that happens when we're quarantining at home and thus would have a, an increased surgical risk. Um, so... Uh, she goes on to say that uh, a unimodal or multimodal prehabilitation could be an effective uh, intervention to counter these effects in our uh, patients preoperatively. Uh, we didn't know uh, much about prehabilitation before, and it seemed like an interesting and exciting topic and something very relevant as our healthcare system continues to reopen. Um, and we should note that Dr. Silver writes kind of about all forms of prehabilitation. Uh, our conversation today will focus on pulmonary prehabilitation specifically. And for those uh, of you who uh, might be simple-minded like me, it's prehabilitation as in pre-rehabilitation. Just wanted to get that disclaimer out there. Um, so, Dr. Garrison, thank you for being with us. Uh, and can you explain for us, um, what is your definition of pulmonary prehabilitation uh, in the broadest sense, and what is the goal behind it? Thanks for having me. Um, so prehabilitation is sort of an, uh, an evolving concept that's becoming increasingly recognized in its importance. We know that uh, surgery is something that's hard on the body, uh, and we know that most surgeries entail some amount of recovery time. And patients with certain comorbidities may have a harder time during that recovery time and may end up actually with lasting functional impairment after having their surgery. Uh, and so really the idea for prehabilitation is to do some sort of intervention that gets the person in better shape to undergo surgery and then has improved morbidity uh, following, uh, following the procedure. And so this has been looked at for, for a, lot, a lot of different surgical procedures. Um, pulmonary prehabilitation would be specifically for, for patients who have uh, underlying lung disease and are going to be undergoing uh, lung surgery like a resection of a lung cancer. That's super fascinating. Uh, you know, 
I, I was really curious, Dr. Garrison, if you could talk a little bit about the, what sorts of measures and time requirements uh, are required when you talk about pulmonary prehabilitation. And, um, and kind of back to what Dylan was saying, you know, aside from the timing, how is prehabilitation different than post-operative pulmonary rehab? So uh, it's a good question. And, and I think one of the challenges with studying this is that the definition of, of prehab and rehab can be fairly broad. We have, uh, we have something called pulmonary rehabilitation, which is commonly done um, outside of the operative setting. And so pulmonary rehabilitation is a, a multimodal approach involving exercise training, uh, nutrition counseling, uh, smoking cessation counseling, disease education, uh, breathing education, occasionally involves ins inspiratory muscle training. Um, and it's usually overseen by a respiratory therapist or someone who's able to help the patients target, um, uh, target their effort. Um, this is done uh, in patients with uh, primarily COPD is what has the most data. So classically, this has been done in people with obstructive lung disease, although increasing data that maybe is useful in other kinds of lung disease. And so that, that pulmonary rehabilitation program is, depending on the program, between two and three sessions a week. Uh, over eight weeks, and those sessions are generally between three and four hours per session. So it's fairly involved, pretty involved session, and then oftentimes those patients are enrolled into a maintenance program afterwards. Um, and, and so that's shown um, that people who've undergone pulmonary rehabilitation, um, at least shortly after their period of, of rehabilitation, can have improved functional capacity and reduced exacerbations, and you know, seems to be something good and something that we like to offer. Um, Patients who've had surgery are sometimes placed in a, 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 a smaller duration uh, protocol, kind of the same structure though, where you have targeted exercise, um, you have someone overseeing it. Um, there can be some disease education and some, uh, uh, and some smoking cessation counseling, nutrition counseling, and that's done after surgery with the goal to restore someone's functional capacity um, after after having something like a lobectomy. So you can imagine someone with lung disease who already has some kind of functional impairment, has part of their lung removed, and they're going to have less capacity afterwards. So, um, so, so post-operative rehab is something that may be useful for restoring functional capacity. Preoperative rehab or prehab is something that happens, most of the, most of the, the protocols are between two and four weeks uh, of, uh, of intervention, and the interventions are really kind of all over the place. So there, there, there's been interventions that have had um, exercise training, uh, ones that have had um, inspiratory muscle strength training, some that have been in person, some that have been not in person. Uh, and so the interventions and the schedule have been very different between the regimens, but it, all of them are going to involve some kind of exercise training that's monitored that's targeted towards some sort of outcome, like an effort outcome or, um, or, or a capacity outcome of, uh, for the patients. Uh, and and uh, depending on what kind of surgery it is, um, is, is going to be between two and four weeks. We, we definitely want to not delay some of these surgeries. So some of the, for pulmonary, uh, for, for pulmonary surgery, those are often done for cancer. And so we don't want to wait four, six, eight weeks to, to do the surgery. So shorter duration for those um, uh, is, is probably what's ideal, um, but still kind of up in the air and people don't always know kind of what specific, um, what, what specific component of the prehab is the most useful.
That's interesting. And I imagine that um, it can be sometimes difficult to coordinate that with patients, but um, I think with uh, just focusing on uh, probably some of the core exercises would, would probably lead to, uh, you know, pretty good preparation. So, um, you know, and we've seen this happen in uh, a number of studies that have found prehabilitation to be um, both cost-effective and associated with a, a shorter length of stay. Um, so do we know anything kind of specifically about prehabilitation's efficacy in the preoperative setting uh, among patients with pulmonary disease? And do we have like a subset of those patients who seem to benefit the most? So uh, again, the, 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 the number of studies on prehab uh, has not been that many. And so there are, there are a couple of studies looking at different regimens, two and four week regimens, um, that do show that um, following surgery, people have improved walk distance, improved quality of life, improved, actually even improved lung function. So, so there, there do seem to be some benefits by just having, I mean, even these couple like two week interventions with, with high intensity exercise seems to be something that's, that's useful. Now, you know, it, when you're scaling things up, we, we do have limited resources. And so trying to identify which patients are most likely to benefit is important. And in some of the studies, they, they, I, they selected patients that were already at slightly increased risk of complications following surgery and so thoracic surgery. So they, they may base that either on the lung function testing or they may base it on a cardiopulmonary exercise study looking at their VO2 max. And so people who have a really high VO2 max well, they're probably going to do okay with surgery anyway, so, so the prehab may not make sense for those people. But people that have some uh, bit of a decrease in their VO2 max um, are probably going to be ones that are going to um, benefit the most from this kind of structured exercise uh, uh, regimen. Dr. Garrison, I kind of want to bring up a study that I thought was interesting, and I think it kind of sheds a little bit of uh, light to what we're talking about. And the study I'm referencing is a 2019 randomized controlled trial out of analgesia and anesthesia. Uh, for our listeners, it's titled Two-Week Multimodal Prehabilitation Program Improves Perioperative Functional Capability in Patients Undergoing Thoracoscopic Lobectomy for Lung Cancer. That is a mouthful. Um, <laughs> but that study, in a, in a nutshell, introduced a two-week regimen of aerobic and resistance exercise, nutrition counseling, protein supplementation, respiratory training, etc., many of the things that you talked about, um, for patients undergoing video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery lobectomy for lung cancer. And they found that their intervention group had a higher six-minute walk test by about 61 meters and a higher force vital capacity of 0.35 liters. Now, neither Dylan and I are pulmonologists, um, but we wanted to ask you if you could shine a little bit of light on this. Is, is that a significant finding or not so much? Yeah, so, you know, the, the measures of improvement are sometimes a little bit challenging. So a six-minute walk test that increases by 61 meters would be considered a significant improvement. And the, the FBC... Um, uh, of, of about 0.4 liters would be a significant improvement also. And you would expect those patients likely to have um, improvements in their, uh, um, uh, in their perception of their functional capacity also. And I think it's a, it's, it's a, really, uh, it's a, it's a really cool thing to see that a two-week regimen mm -hmm. of exercise before surgery has an impact on their outcome after the surgery. Uh, now, this study had kind of small numbers, um, but, uh, you know, and, and that can certainly introduce some, um, some variability into the interpretation, but, uh, uh, but it is cool. You can have these sort of significant improvements and um, not a lot of investment beforehand. 
Yeah, it seems like, uh, you know, for the, um, you know, the cost of, of, you know, time and money that would go into uh, such a program like this, those, those do seem like uh, very, um, very, uh, very important gains. So it seems like uh, something that a lot of uh, um, like primary care doctors would be thinking of uh, wanting to have uh, set up for their patients that they are might be sending to surgery or others that surgeons might be um, wanting to help coordinate for their patients with underlying lung disease. But, um, you know, we think that, uh, well, this would be great for everyone to happen, obviously, uh, there can be challenges that go into this, into the implementation of it. So, um, have you kind of, are there any particular challenges that you think, uh, that you've experienced and have you had any, uh, luck kind of addressing these challenges in ways that, um, some of our, um, primary care, uh, listeners or any listeners for that matter might be able to use? The, the biggest thing is really, is really access. Uh, so pulmonary rehabilitation programs aren't present everywhere. Usually, if you're doing pulmonary prehabilitation, it's going to be done in the same kind of environment with a respiratory therapist or someone who can uh, adequately monitor the patients while they're having exercise, who can interpret their data and target their exercise goals. Um, so access, access is a real problem. Um, there's, a, there's a limited capacity. You're competing with the pulmonary rehabilitation classes, and those are full all the time. And those go on eight-week cycles. Uh, and so it's hard sometimes to figure out a, a way to get people in to actually have the prehab. Another big problem that we have, especially in a rural state, is that a lot of patients are coming from far away. And so to, to come for a daily uh, prehab regimen or, or a couple times a week prehab regimen is going to be a real challenge to try and have someone drive for a couple hours back and forth each day for two weeks. And, and so that's, that's kind of a problem that we've got. There are some other pulmonary rehabilitation programs in, um, in our sort of in our state, but uh, everything is a bit spread apart. So, so access, and even if you have access, the patients being able to come is, uh, is, is a problem. And we have not set up a, a plan to have people stay uh, and maybe get the exercise for two weeks before. You know, that would be something that would be, to have that, that, that we don't have available uh, right now. But, um, but hopefully as the data comes out for this and we can see some of the importance, they'll be able to build more capacity, more respiratory therapists, more room in the, um, in, in the, the facility to add more patients uh, to, to the prehab. On the topic of access, I'm curious if you can kind of comment on whether cost is an issue here, and do insurance cover companies cover prehabilitation, or is that something that um, patients have to seek out of pocket? So that's a that's a great question, and the the answer is it probably varies based on their insurance and 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 what the indication is. Um, so Medicare will cover uh, pulmonary rehabilitation for people with COPD. Uh, they do a very good job of paying for that. There's a lifetime cap of 36 sessions that are covered for pulmonary rehabilitation. And sometimes, you know, depending on, um, it, you know, if the person does have moderate COPD and is going, you can, you can um, uh, use that as the reason that you're doing the, the rehab before the surgery. Uh, w- whether or not other insurances will cover it, uh, I think is a bit up in the air. If, if, if they do have COPD, though, I think there are ways to, to have it be covered. Okay. That's great. I think that's a little bit kind of optimistic for um, 
patients to hear, I'm sure. Um, you know, similar similar question related to access. You talked about kind of the difficulty for patients, you know, to arrive for in-person visits. But seeing kind of how the world is changing into more of a telehealth model in recent months, um, do you think rehabilitation is a feasible or effective option in the telehealth world? I think it will be. I, I you know, I think that it's there's not going to be a good substitute for having the the some of the testing that would happen beforehand and having the interperson connections to encourage good exercise. But there there are some studies that um, do show that even a virtual prehab regimen prior to surgery could be something that's uh, that's useful. Um, and I think that that's uh, that's really cool. And there's some things that are fairly easy to do at home, like inspiratory muscle strength training that um, that may have some benefits long term and so um, so I you know the way things are right now it certainly is something that that um, we're building uh, for pulmonary rehab and will hopefully be something that we can continue to offer moving forward especially because we have these access and travel issues with a lot of our patients yeah and actually uh, you know one kind of cool resource that we found out about and uh, very recently there was an April 2020 article out of uh, PMNR that was all about how to conduct an outpatient telemedicine rehabilitation or prehabilitation visit. Uh, so, you know, and we expect this probably covers um, all the different types of, of rehabilitation or prehabilitation. So it might not be specific to pulmonary, but um, I, I would imagine there might be some um, general guidance in there that could be useful. So I think that's a really cool, uh, you know, innovation that, uh, Docs in PM&R and beyond are, are looking to use, so we can look, look forward to using that uh, going forward. Um, and so to follow up, uh, there was another article um, by Dr. Silver in uh, the British Medical Journal titled, Prehabilitation Could Save Lives in a Pandemic. Uh, and she poses a question that if prehabilitation is effective in a preoperative setting, um, could its efficacy be translated into a strong preventative measure for all patients uh, at risk of COVID-19. Um, and so do you think, as we as we try to keep track of the numbers of, of who uh, is still vulnerable or most vulnerable to taking uh, COVID-19, would you see a role of expanding pulmonary prehab um, to other patients who might not be undergoing elective surgery but might be at risk of contracting the virus? Uh I, I think it's probably true that the better shape people are in, the better that they do with a lot of conditions, illness or surgery. Uh, one, of the, one of the advantages of prehab is that we know a time point for when their surgery is or what we're getting them ready for. And we know that with pulmonary rehabilitation, some of the benefits wear off if intensive exercise is not maintained. Um, so in some ways, if we, if we expand prehab uh, to a wider population uh, without a clear kind of endpoint, it's something that we want to just, and at some point it just becomes exercise. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah. but it may, you know, I think that, that we, we do have some people that um, uh, certainly could, could benefit if they have pre-existing lung or heart disease and um, are, uh, have, have a low fitness level and, you know, perhaps this could, improve their chances of doing well with, with COVID. We don't, we don't really know that, but that it certainly makes some amount of sense. Um, uh, and, and maybe if we are able to do things virtually, uh, mm. we could get 
we could roll things out to a, to a wider audience and keep people engaged for a period of time. But the duration of time where people are going to have to be doing it mm-hmm. is a little bit of a problem. And then, you know, the access, uh, keeping people committed for, for a, a long time is a bit of a challenge. Uh, but I do, I do believe that, you know, any way that people can be a bit fitter is probably better for them. Absolutely. I'm curious to know whether you think that, or if you, could, if you foresee that something like this could be implemented effectively in Vermont on like a broader scale. Um, yeah, I think if we were going to do something that was, that was a bit more targeted, uh, I think looking at some of the vulnerable nursing home populations might be, uh, might be a place that, uh, that you could start. Um, some places do have built-in physical therapy, and maybe there would be a way to, uh, to structure things um, a little bit. Uh, more towards prehabilitation and um, and breathing and you know working on breathing exercises and whatnot. Uh, I think it would be hard to roll it out to a, a wide a, a real wide audience just because you lose a lot of that that interactions mm-hmm. when you have a really uh, a really large audience. Uh, but perhaps you know identifying those particularly high risk patients might be something uh, that would be that would be doable and and you know those patients may also be motivated right now to to try and do things that are going to have, uh, that that are going to improve their their chances if they if they do happen to get sick. I'm optimistic that you know uh, should we see a project like this go forward? Who knows? Maybe we'll be talking about the next the pulmonary prehab version of Pokemon Go. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyways, on that note, um, I think that's all the questions we have, and we're really thankful for your time, Dr. Garrison, um, and your expertise. All right. Thank you. And uh, for everyone listening, um, we'll just remind our awesome listeners to stay tuned for updates by following our Twitter account at ACP underscore Vermont. Um, You are also most welcome to send us feedback on any of our episodes. You can reach Dylan or myself at our medical school emails, which I will include in the caption of this podcast. That's it for today on Green Mountain Medicine. I'm Matt Tsai. And I'm Dylan Conduction. And thanks for tuning in. If you found our discussion enjoyable, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter. ACP underscore Vermont for more podcast updates.